This morning we're going to be actually taking on a bit more than just that uh, small section from Acts 26, so if you would actually just stay there with me. We're going to be reading different sections of this, but I do want to start with a question, and uh, when I ask the question, you're going to be like, man, I feel like this is the third or fourth time that I've uh, been asked a question about thinking or heard Chris say something from the pulpit about what it is to be thoughtful or thinking. I- I've several times in the last few weeks uh, just mentioned Uh, clear thinking. I've mentioned what it is to kind of uh, uh, maybe distill things down to critical questions. Uh, Why am I doing that? Why am I doing that? I I really want uh, to hide in the ethos of City Church uh, clear and good thinking in a time that is very chaotic, that's uh, kind of like miserably chaotic in some ways with so many different kinds of messages. I want for City Church to be a place where there is uh, clear thinking, thoughtfulness. So here's the question that I've got for you. Do you ever enjoy a good think? Just enjoy a good think. And I'm not talking about like the Pooh Bear kind of think, 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 think kind of thing. I mean like the real thinking stuff, a good hard one. Because all of us know just kind of the enjoyment, the pleasure that it is that even a small, like, trivial puzzle or crossword or Sudoku uh, can teach us about thinking. But I actually mean going way beyond that. I mean something more than that. Philosophical conundrums, existential questions, moral dilemmas. I wonder if you enjoy uh, trying to find durable solutions to uh, very nearly intractable problems that you face at work or in your family. Do you enjoy it? I believe that humans were actually made to ponder meaning. I think that we were, uh, we were put on this earth in some ways to find, to explore, to cultivate meaning. I think that uh, in some ways we were even uh, put here to explore what it is to be conscious. I, I know that it's a weird thing to think about, but uh, you literally are a bundle of nerve cells. Your mind is a bundle of nerve cells. And, and despite the fact that almost every other uh, animal that I'm aware of has some sort of nervous system, They don't have consciousness. They don't have the same kind of consciousness that we have. They don't have those uh, souls where the the nerves are like bound together in some way where you are actually like aware not just of yourself but of other beings. I, I think that we were meant, part of the human experience was meant to actually ponder and explore consciousness, and, and in some ways to like uh, have your experience transcend what you're physically uh, like encountering. We can, we can think about like the stars and the cosmos. We've never visited them. We've maybe seen pictures of them, but we can actually explore this universe in our minds. It's kind of crazy. You can transcend your physical being just by exploring new thoughts, something that I find very interesting. God has made us to be thinkers. We are thinking things as well as affectionate things. It's part of the way that God's image is born out in us. It's part of uh, our glorious endowment of God's divine likeness. And it's interesting to note that uh, the more we explore a thought or a topic, the more that there is. A lot of times you can be thinking really hard about something and just discover that there are a lot of ways of thinking about those things that go beyond the stuff that you already knew. And so it's almost like the deeper you dig, the farther you realize that you have to dig. 
you realize how complicated things are. However, the more complicated things are, the more important it is for us to arrive at simple truths. This is actually what I think wisdom is. If you're wondering uh, the difference between like intelligence and wisdom, I think it's the ability to take a, a huge sum of information and derive really simple conclusions about it. You're not just caught up in the chaos of how uh, complex a problem is. You're actually doing something with it. You're whittling it down, as it were, to basic, simple truths. I wonder if you enjoy it. I, I enjoy it. I'm uh, not very good at it, but I, I like doing it. I like thinking. This won't surprise anybody that's uh, met me. And, and I find that the most admirable thinkers are the ones who can wade through like a morass of complication and arrive at these simple conclusions. I, I was listening to a podcast earlier this week, and I heard uh, the podcaster refer to uh, just somebody uh, that I follow, a guy named uh, Stephen Kotkin. He's, uh, he's an intelligentsia. He's one of these uh, thinking, think tank people. He's actually at the Hoover Institute, and he spent his entire life studying uh, Soviet Russia. He's a historian that has uh, essentially uh, spent the last 30 years of his life just reading things about Soviet Russia. In fact, he's written, I've only gone about halfway through the first one of them, but he's written three books on Stalin. And each book is about yay thick and is really dense. But it's really uh, like just interesting kind of uh, biography about like how he came up and the things that motivated him. And he was asked this question. Stephen, you've spent 30 years in Soviet archives. What have you learned? What have you learned? And this was his three-word response. They were communists. <laughs> now, even contained in like that really simple uh, phrase, like he, what he meant was they were really communists. Like, they weren't, like, half-hearted. It wasn't like uh, Stalin and Lenin were just out, out for this power grab and wanting to, like, complete. They really believed in communism. And so he's done 30 years of work, and he's distilled it down into, like, a three-word sentence, something that I am completely incapable of. That is the kind of thinking that I admire. And one of the things that I've noticed about uh, good thinkers, both ancient and modern, is their ability to do this distillation process. There's a reason why I'm mentioning this another time in one of our gatherings. The, be, the ability not just to arrive at critical questions, but this is like another tool that if you just want to put it in your tool belt, the ability to whittle down things, really complex things, into essentially two prospects. You know, you, could, you can recognize this when you see it. It's like uh, my son and I, we like uh, Star Wars. Not like overly like. We just like it. No judgment. Okay, the Yoda is the one that says, uh, do or do not do. There is no try. He's saying there's only two ways of going about things. You either do it or you don't do it, but you don't try it things. It's almost like the wisdom is uh, really discerning that there will be two things. And you might just go like, Chris, okay, I get it. But the, how does this practically work out? Well, we encounter these kinds of things all the time. These kinds of decisions are always in front of us. Will you marry me? Yes or no? There's not like a third way there. You think about like other questions like kids. Um, in our house, we have, uh, we have rules. I assume that all of the kids in this room have rules, but we try to impress on our kids that there is either obedience or disobedience. There's not like a third way. There's not like delayed obedience is still disobedience, right? There's two ways of going about things. 
these questions kind of come about in a way that there are really just two obvious answers. And you may have noticed in the reading of our text today that there were two distinct responses to Jesus. How do you arrive at like simple wisdom about Jesus? You try to decide what is true, and we're going to see that there are two things, that one is either true or the other is true. There is no third way. And here's what we find. The only two responses to the resurrection are belief or unbelief. The only two. There's not some third way where Jesus is like just a Zen master, really good guy, like a good philosopher, a good thinker even. When you consider the resurrection, there is either belief or there is unbelief. Those are the only two responses. So what we see in, uh, like from last week, if you were joining us, is that in chapter 25, Paul is saved from being sent back to Jerusalem, his certain death, when he appeals to a higher authority. He appeals to Caesar, and his life is saved. And, and this is the uh, last of the weeks where Paul is just in this kind of perpetual twilight zone, where he is, uh, he's uh, been arrested, you know, he's uh, been charged with things, He's facing false charges. He's giving a defense. He's giving his testimony. This is the last week where we get to kind of explore his testimony one more time. And we discovered last week, as well as the weeks before, that the stakes are very high, that there are a variety of factors that are kind of uh, negotiating how people are deciding about these things in real time. There are ethnic and social considerations. There are political and personal things that people are thinking about. There is a worldview that is on the line. So just in case you think that like uh, Paul's interaction with all of these uh, authorities is inconsequential, here's the truth. It was so consequential, think about this, it was so consequential that the Holy Spirit had Luke, the writer of Acts, include this three times as he was concluding Acts. So I wonder if you might Take it up with me again. Consider it one more time. So although Festus agrees to send him to Caesar, Paul is still in Caesarea. So he said, hey, you've appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go, and then he does nothing. Paul is still there in Caesarea, and now there are a few more characters. I want to go back uh, to chapter 25 and introduce you to the new characters that are there. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa, the king, and Bernice arrived at Caesarea, greeting Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man left prisoner by Felix, that was the previous governor. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accuser face to face and had the opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day I took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When his accuser stood up, they brought, uh, they brought no charge in his case of the evils as I had supposed. Rather... They had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who is dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. 
Being at a loss of how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But Paul had appealed to uh, be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor. I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and prominent men of the city. Then, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa, and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought to live any lo- he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving of death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that we, after we have examined him, I might have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Now, that's a long passage, but there's a lot of things contained in the midst of that passage that gives us a context for what is happening now with Paul. We see first that there is Festus, this governor, replacing Felix, who was being cruel, and he's coming in, and he's trying to tidy things up. He's trying to smooth things over with the Jews, and one of the ways that he's doing that is by bringing in the regional king. Now, this is an interesting thing to do. King Agrippa didn't have much power, certainly uh, very little power in the eyes of Rome, Uh, but Festus, wanting to make sure that he was politically okay, was including other people who had been around a lot longer than him. And Herod, who was, I'm sorry, Agrippa, who was one of the Herods, one of the four Herods that we know about, who had been in that region, who had been ruling over that region, was actually brought in And immediately, Festus is like, I need your opinion on this matter. I don't know what I'm going to do with this man. Now, here's what you need to know about Agrippa. Agrippa was a king. He was this regional kind of feckless king. I mean, he could still do things like killing James in Acts chapter 12. But he didn't have any real authority as far as it related to Rome. He was there as kind of an advisor. But we also see that he had a lot of wealth and that he was brought in and uh, there was all this pomp and circumstance and all of the prominent men came in and saw how great this man Agrippa was. So that's the scene that's in front of us. And although uh, Festus is agreeing to send him to Caesar, he wants to get some input from Agrippa. So here's, here's what I want to do. I want for you to know what the primary question is that's in front of them because let's be honest, Festus is kind of confused. He says outright, like, they, I expected them to bring all of these evil charges, but it seems like they just had these religious disputes. And I don't know what to do. Now Paul is saying, I want to go to Caesar, but I don't even know what to write about him. So why is Paul standing there? In chapter 26, verse 8, we find the answer to this. We see that the question really in front of them is whether or not the dead can be raised to life. The question that is in front of them is the resurrection. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? 
That's the primary question. And there are two responses, remember? We're seeing two responses to this. We're seeing Paul's response, and then we're seeing Festus's and Agrippa's response. They're going to roughly kind of equate to belief and unbelief. So what is Paul's response to the resurrection? Paul graciously actually tells us what his response was, starting in verse 9. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Now, that's a little surprising, right? I asked, hey, what was Paul's response? And then we went to the text where Paul's response to the resurrection was opposition to Jesus, was raging fury, and was persecution. That's what his first response to the resurrection was. I think we're told this story multiple times in Acts because we need to know that the gospel is offensive, that the resurrection is offensive to all people, including Paul. Why? Well, because Paul was zealous for the Lord's name. It even says that he tried to make them blaspheme. Paul was also uh, zealous for his status as a Jew. He, he throws this out there and he says, uh, according to the strictest party, I lived as a Pharisee. Paul's trying to tell you that he had something to protect. He had a reputation to protect. He had this zeal to protect, and the resurrection was coming in and reorienting things for him. Paul's identity was bound up in his ethnicity, in his party, in his works, in his zeal. And what I think that Paul is doing is giving us a warning. I think he's giving Festus and Agrippa a warning. Do not place your value in ethnicity or party or works or zealousness of any kind. I wonder if that strikes you as odd this morning, to, for somebody to say that out loud. I wonder if it strikes you as maybe even dangerous to say in the current environment with the things that have happened this very week but I want you to know that I think that Paul is giving us a warning. I think that many of us today should heed this warning. Your race, your party, your works, your zeal cannot save you. Can I get an amen? Your ethnicity in front of God, though I think divinely orchestrated and created, though I, I think that God just loves the fact that there are so many nations and so many ethnicities here on this earth, there is but one race. There's but one race. And you can't be saved by your ethnicity. You can't be saved by your party. You can't be saved by how righteous you are and the things that you tweet and post. You can't be saved by how you vote. You can't. If you're trying to earn your salvation through those things, Paul is warning you, none of those things amount to salvation for you. I'm not saying don't think about those things. Don't take them seriously. They ought to be taken seriously. But as it relates to your salvation, place no hope in those things. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying, I did, and it led to murder. 
I, I was a Pharisee's Pharisee. I was a Jew. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was in. And it mattered not because what was I doing? In verses 12 through 18, we see precisely what he was doing. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. So he's in. And at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's an interruption. Paul is on his way to persecute and murder people, to oversee the persecution of Christians. And his zeal isn't going to save him. His ethnicity isn't going to save him. His party affiliation, his works are not going to save him. His second response to the resurrection is humility. Who are you, Lord? He, he realizes that if he's being confronted on this road by a resurrected Savior, that he's got it wrong and that he's got to be humbled. He was going on the way to murder people and he is the one that needed to die. Who are you, Lord? Paul understands that if Jesus has risen from the grave and he is persecuting him, he must be humble. There is a human need for truth, and we want what is genuine and authentic. If you're real, Jesus, let me know. And Jesus lets him know. In verses 19 through 23, we see we see that he responds finally in belief. He says this to King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and then throughout the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me to this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. What is Paul's response? What is Paul's response? He tells King Agrippa, I wasn't disobedient. I went along the way declaring. He said, I obeyed, I believed. Paul says that he was going from Jerusalem to Judea to the Gentiles, telling everyone, declaring to everyone, repent and turn to God. Paul says that he was preaching to all 
that they perform deeds in keeping with their repentance. He was inviting others not just to believe in the resurrection, but to live resurrected lives of obedience. Paul responds to the resurrection first with defiance, then with humility, and finally with faithful obedience, belief. How do we respond to the resurrection? Paul believes the resurrection. What about Festus and Agrippa? How do they respond to the resurrection? The first one that we see is in verse 24. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus, with a loud voice, now interrupting Paul, says, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. Festus is telling Paul that he thinks that he's crazy. And here's what I find interesting. Paul, rather Festus, in describing what Paul is going through to Agrippa before Paul is in the room, is essentially telling him, man, you know, uh, they just had this like theological dispute, and I, I think that I just tuned out because it just seemed like it didn't have anything to do with Rome. Why would I listen? And he says to him, the Jews, they said that Jesus was dead, and I think that Paul said that maybe he's alive. I think genuinely that Festus didn't know one way or another. He wasn't listening, because if he had, you would have seen this response beforehand. I think that what he thought was they were just disagreeing about whether or not somebody was dead or not, not whether or not somebody was resurrected. But the second that Festus knows what Paul is saying, he says, you're crazy. You're crazy. He's being respectful about it. He goes, you're really smart, but you're going crazy. Chapter 25, verse 18 says this. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I had supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute about their own religion. He thought it was just a theological difference. Now, Festus is hearing him. He's hearing him say the Christ might, must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light. Festus is saying, if you think that Jesus is alive, and not just that Jesus is alive, but that he's the first of many who will be raised from the grave, then I think you're crazy. Can we be honest about something? Something about our faith. I mean, in this moment, in this room, can we just acknowledge something? If Jesus is still in a tomb, when Paul says that we're to be pitied above all people, oh man, I mean, think about it. If Jesus is still in a grave, we are nuts. We're crazy. Festus had his finger on the pulse. He was saying, listen, if you think that dead people are alive, you're out of your minds. That's a, that's a critique that Christians should take actually pretty seriously. Have you dealt with the evidence of the resurrection? Because if you're just going along the road thinking, yeah, Jesus is alive and everything, but you haven't really dived deeply into the evidence that he is really resurrected, I wonder if you're not giving the problem the credence that it deserves. Festus responds in unbelief. But Paul just responds, no, I'm not crazy. I'm speaking true and rational words. And then King Agrippa, 
Paul turns his attention towards King Agrippa, and uh, King Agrippa just hears him out for a little bit longer, but interrupts him also. Paul says this, for the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I, persuaded, for I am persuaded that none of these things escaped your notice, for this did not happen, uh, did not, for this has not been done in a quarter. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? That's a pretty bold question to ask a king. I know that you believe. Man, even bolder. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but that all who hear me this day might become such as I am. King Agrippa responds very differently than Festus. Festus just goes straight at him and says, are you out of your mind? Instead, what Agrippa does is say, are you evangelizing me? Do you think that I'm going to become a Christian? Do you see where you are? Do you see where I am? Do you see what you're wearing chains? Do you see where I'm seated? Do you know who I am? It's like classic deflection. Rather than dealing with the substance of the resurrection, he just goes, <laughs> do you think you're going to have like some impact here? And Paul goes, yeah, absolutely I do. I, I would, not just that you, but everybody here, Paul says, I would that they become believers. Agrippa is just deflecting. There must have been something in him that had something to protect. But here's what's interesting. Here's what's really interesting to me. You know how many times the word Christian is used in Scripture? Not often. It's not used very often at all. What does that tell us about Agrippa? He knows. Paul knows that he knows. He said, Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. How does Paul know? He knew Agrippa. Maybe not personally, but he knew, of, uh, he knew his family for sure. Uh, plenty of people that Paul had known had been persecuted by Agrippa and by the Herods. Paul knew. Paul knew that Agrippa knew. You see, remember that Agrippa had already been persecuting Christians too. He killed James in Acts chapter 12. And in order for Agrippa to become a Christian, pay attention to this. He had to come to terms with that sin publicly. What Paul was really asking Agrippa to do was repent in that moment in front of all of these prominent people that he had been persecuting Christians. And Agrippa wasn't going to let go of that ego. He wasn't going to give over in, all, in front of all of these people repentance publicly. Agrippa has a seared conscience, a hardened heart, and a reputation to keep. So if the question is, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Agrippa's answer is, no way. Paul's answer is, yes. Festus responds by mocking Paul. Agrippa responds by deflection. Ultimately, both of their responses are unbelief. You have Paul's belief. You have Festus and Agrippa's unbelief. 
in a short time, would I persuade you to be a Christian? Here's Paul's answer. Verse 29, look at it with me. Whether short or long, I would that God would not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except these chains. Paul's answer is yes. I hope that you would respond with belief. I hope that all who hear me would respond with belief. Where does Paul get off? Where does he get all of this? I want to take us momentarily to Romans chapter 10. This is where we're going to land today. We're going to be in verses 10 through 13. It says this. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For Scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved." What does it mean that Paul wills that all might become like him? It means this. It means that all might respond in belief. He says, these chains aren't for show. I'm under real arrest that all might believe in their hearts and confess with their mouths that Jesus is Lord. And it's easy to think that Festus and Agrippa weren't religious since they responded to him in unbelief. But here's what I want to pose to you this morning. I think that both of them were very religious. This is just simply, it's not true that they weren't religious. Festus and Agrippa were both putting their faith in something. They were both religious. Just out of this text, you get to see that Festus spends a great deal of time in chapter 25 justifying himself and his actions as a Roman. He, he says, I've, not, I've got nothing definite to write to whom? To my Lord. You know what was written on Roman coinage of the day? It had pictures of the Roman emperors, and it literally had the inscriptions underneath were son of God. They believed that the emperors were gods, and here he is using a common phrase, but saying, I've got nothing to write to the emperor, my Lord. I, I don't have anything to say to him. I'm going to look foolish. I'm going to look like I'm not managing things well. I'm going to look like I don't know what I'm doing. He said, it seems unreasonable not to at least just indicate the charges. We here in Rome, we have all of these customs about people seeing their accuser face to face and knowing what charges are brought against them. If I send this guy Paul up there, that's why Paul is still sitting in prison. He doesn't know what to do with them. That's why he's reaching out to Agrippa just going, I've got to be a good Roman here, right? I'm not getting this one done right. I need somebody to help me. I can't let this go. I can't let it go. Festus was extremely religious. We get the sense of a man who puts his faith in Rome, his Roman sensibility, and Roman reason. Reason is mentioned several times in this passage, but it's not just Festus who's uh, religious. It's Agrippa and Bernice. Agrippa and Bernice, on the other hand, have uh, great belief. They have really strong belief, but who is their belief in? It's in themselves. They arrive there with great pomp and circumstance. 
Agrippa comes from this lineage of cruel Herods, these cruel Roman uh, kind of ordained kings of the area. And Paul is bold and just tells him that he knows that he believes the prophets, and yet he's acted unjustly time and time again. He's from a family who is unjust time and time again. And Paul, if it weren't for God's grace, might receive the same cruel treatment from him that others have. Festus's religion is Roman and reason. Agrippa, as the king, has fashioned an idol to suit his own image. Both men should hear and believe the gospel. Both should lay down their other allegiances and respond to the resurrection in belief. Romans 10, verses 14 through 17 go on to say this. I want you to pay attention to this very carefully. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear about someone without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? We're given a pattern here that we ought to pay very close attention to this morning. If if the question is, how then shall we live? So it's not how should Agrippa, how should Festus live? They should respond in belief. If the question for us this morning is, how should we live? Paul has an answer for us. Paul has an answer for us. He says, I hope that everybody would be like me. What a strange, bold thing to say. Have you ever said that? Have you said that to your kids? I want you to live like me. I spend like half of the time telling my kids, don't just try not to be anything like me, okay? Have you ever like been discipling someone and be like, just do it the way that I'm doing it? We kind of laugh because we're just so in tune with the fact that we are sinners and we're not worthy of being the model for other people to follow. And here Paul is saying, I follow Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. Man, that's a big deal, I think. How in Romans did Paul say that he was worthy of imitation? He gives us this pattern He tells us that we must preach the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. Why? Because he says, first and foremost, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you want to see people go from death into life, if you want to do what Paul is doing here and hoping that all people would follow Jesus, if you're hoping that uh, you could participate in some small way in what Paul says was his charge, that he go out and tell other people and that they would come out of darkness and into light, if you want to just see somebody be saved, what he says is, is that you've got to see someone confessing with their mouth calling on the name of the Lord, that is what saves someone. It's a bestowing of riches on all who call on him. How can I do that? Well, he, he, he says, well, for, uh, for them to call, they must believe. That makes sense, right? 
If, if I'm going to call on the name of Jesus, I've got to have some level of belief, some level of faith that he is the one that I need to be calling on, right? But, but how do we get even to that belief? Here's where it becomes very applicable to us today. They must believe. How will they believe? They must hear us say Jesus. They must hear us say the name of Jesus. I wonder if uh, a few months ago when we were recasting some of the vision for City Church and we started talking about evangelism, I wonder if you just got nervous a little bit. It's like, am I going to be a part of this like strange church that actually wants us to go out and tell other people about the things that we believe? That feels awkward. It feels hard. I don't know. It would want to ruin some relationships. Here's the truth. How in the world are they going to call on a name? Call on the name. Call on Jesus' name for salvation if they don't believe. How are they going to believe if they have never heard? Christians, we must, we must be telling the world about the name of Jesus. How will they hear the name of Jesus if we don't preach it to them? Paul is saying in Romans, we must preach. I wonder if you knew that you were a preacher. I wonder if you're thinking, no, that's your job. It's not my job. It's our job. It's our job to be preachers. Every believer needs to be preaching the gospel. Is there something unique or something set apart about like a Sunday morning where we're reciting and we're teaching the word? I don't want to take anything away from this. What we do here in this room together, not me, together is very important. But all it is doing is equipping us for the work of the ministry. Each and every one of us in this room who calls on the name of Jesus is a preacher of the gospel. Do you know it? Have you ever thought about yourself in that way? I'm charging you this morning. That's actually what Romans says that we're supposed to do. How, how, will, how will they receive the word? Well, you got to preach to them. How, how do I get uh, preached to? Well, you have to be sent. That's what Romans 10 says. I'm sending you this morning. If you've never been sent before, I'm sending you. I'm sending you into the coffee shops. I'm sending you into the schools. I'm sending you into the PTA meetings. I'm sending you into the committee meetings. I'm sending you into the family relationships that you have. I'm sending you. You have to be sent. You have to be sent to preach. You have to preach for them to hear. They have to hear the name of Jesus for them to believe. They have to believe in the name of Jesus to call on him and be saved. If we're not preaching... If we're not sending a city church, if we're not creating the expectation, if we're not kneading into the dough of who we are as a people, that we are preachers, then you will never feel the like, genuine conviction of needing to tell other people about Jesus. So we're sending. If you don't see yourself as a proclaimer, as a preacher, as a testifier to the goodness of the gospel of Jesus' life, death, and life, and our future life with him, if you don't like, have that inside of you, if you're not like, clinging it to it yourself, you're not going to share it. You've got to trust and treasure Jesus' name. City Church will be, by God's grace, a place where we are trying to evangelize our city our neighborhoods, our families. By God's grace, we must do it. We can't rest. We've got to tell people, all of eternity, hell and heaven are on the line. 
And there's going to be two responses, belief and unbelief. So I want to tell you about something practical that we're doing in order to pursue this. Uh, Daniel, sitting back here, is part of our church. I don't know if you know this, but our, our church has supported him uh, in his role as like a full-time evangelist with BSM. That's his like whole role. He goes into coffee shops. He shares the gospel with people. And, and he uses a method. There are lots of methods out there. By God's grace, I want for our church to like learn lots of methods of like sharing the gospel. I want for us to be encouraged in our hearts to share the gospel. And so here's one thing that we're going to do. I've asked uh, for Daniel, and he and I spent some time this uh, last week actually going over like a miniature training that I want him to take into all of our discipleship groups. And so you're going to get an uh, email if you're a discipleship group leader over the next uh, week and a half or so to try to schedule a time for Daniel to come and just do a, a small training for evangelism. I want you to take it seriously. It's just a practical way that we're trying to equip I don't know if you know this, but there are lots of gifts that are given in Scripture. Evangelist is one, like capital E evangelist is one. You don't have to be a capital E evangelist, but we've all got to be lowercase evangelists, telling people all the time about Jesus. I want you to listen to him. I want you to take his direction. I want you to see him as a leader, as a gifted leader in our church. That's what I want for you to do. So we're going to be doing that over the next few weeks. Try to make time. Make sure to make it to that meeting. The second thing that we do, and I'm going to go over this very briefly, a lot of you came into this church knowing that we are part of the Acts 29 network. If you didn't, surprise, we're a part of a network of churches planting other churches. And, and I'll be honest, we don't emphasize it very much, but Acts 29 as an organization is set aside this morning. Uh, there are other churches, sister churches all around the country and even internationally that are just focusing on church planting this morning. Acts 29 is a church planting organization that City Church is a part of, and they're asking for our churches to talk about and pray about planting more churches. Acts 29 believes rightly that the church is the hope of the world, that it is a foretaste of what is to come, that God is building his heavenly city in our midst, and that means that the world needs a lot more churches. Not fewer, a lot more. Acts 29 has been used by God in great ways to plant hundreds of churches, and they're asking, we are asking our God for more. We already partner with them financially. We, spend, uh, we send uh, 1% of our annual budget out to Acts 29 every year in the efforts to continue to resource churches that are planting churches. We're going to continue doing that. But we also want to ask uh, our people to be in prayer for them, to be in prayer for Acts 29, and to be praying that we would actually see church planters raised up here at City Church. Maybe that's you. Maybe you've never thought about it this morning, uh, until this morning. Maybe God's calling you to plant a church. We want to be the kind of church that really can like pull in and equip and love on and care for potential church planters and send them out. So if you're interested, <clears throat> not just today, any day, I want to talk with you about it. We want to partner in ways that see more churches planted. 
We also want to see people trained and supported to discern that calling. So if you want some more information about that, there's going to be an Acts 29 brochure in uh, our lobby that you can pick up on your way out, and I want for you to know that we want to have that conversation with you if you're ever at all interested. Maybe you're not even like a church planter. You just want to be sent out as a part of a church plant. We'd love to talk with you about that, whether it's here or internationally. So here's what I want to do. I want to pray very briefly for Acts 29 and the church planting efforts, and then we're going to continue on in musical worship and with communion. Bow with me. God and Father, you have made us a part of Acts 29, and it has been a blessing. It's not just been a blessing to us or to this city or to this state or to this nation. It's been a blessing to the world, and I thank you so much for the efforts that you are accomplishing through Acts 29. Lord, we want to see more churches planted, and we ask you that there would be many more. We ask you just jealously that we could be a part of that. We want to do this with a great hope for revival here in our city. And Father, as we are looking for a revival of joyful worship here at City Church, it would be such a huge encouragement to see revival as a part of revival, as a part of joy, as a part of worship, the ability to actually send more people out to proclaim and preach the gospel as parts of other new churches. Father, we want to be evangelists. Would you make these efforts, these meager efforts, Lord, empowered by the Spirit? Lord, would you give us a harvest of new souls coming into the kingdom? Would you allow us to see people going from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light? Will you allow us to see people go from death into life in our very midst? Would you allow us to baptize many more people? Father, there is uh, no skill no performance, no dance that we could do or song that we could sing that would bring people into your kingdom. It is only by your sovereign hand that people are saved, that sinners are saved. So we pray that you would do it. We pray with boldness and confidence, just like Paul, that you would be bringing people into your kingdom. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.